This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Welcome to the Race to Value podcast. Today, we have a special edition episode as we are recording this one in collaboration with the Point Health podcast and its host, Stephen Cutberth. We are recording this joint episode in conjunction with the release of our brand new price transparency intelligence brief, which can be downloaded from the ACLC website. Make sure to check the show notes for that link. As you know, if you've listened to previous episodes of the Race to Value podcast, we are focused on advancing the aims of value-based care. The health value equation is comprised of cost, quality, and patient experience. In making healthcare easy to find, easy to understand, and easier to afford for patients is an important part of that. With that in mind, today's special episode features Dr. Keith Smith, co-founder of Surgery Center of Oklahoma, and Sean Kelly, founder and managing partner of Texas Medical Management. I consider Keith and Sean to be the forefathers of price transparency as they have been providing upfront, transparent prices to patients for decades. We are lucky to have them with us today, and I'm excited for you, our listener, to hear how they've been able to put price transparency into action. With that, we will jump into the conversation in this week's Race to Value. Hello, and welcome to this special episode of the Race to Value and the Point Health Podcast. I am Eric Weaver of Race to Value, and I'm joined by Stephen Cutberth of Point Health. Hey, thanks for the intro, Eric. I am very excited for this special episode, and I'm especially excited because we get to talk with Keith and Sean, Dr. Keith Smith and Sean Kelly, that is. Thanks for joining us, Sean and Keith. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Well, to get you acquainted with Keith and Sean, we'll share a quick bio of both of them. Dr. Keith Smith is the co-founder and medical director of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, a physician-owned independent free market surgery center which treats thousands of patients each year at a fraction of the cost of traditional hospitals. Since 2009, they have published all of their pricing publicly on their website 
And Keith has been an outspoken advocate for broader price transparency in healthcare. And Sean Kelly is the founder and managing partner of Texas Medical Management, a free market medicine solution for surgical procedures that offers competitive, transparent prices on surgical procedures across a broad range of specialties. He has more than a decade of experience in healthcare, including holding executive level roles in hospitals and health systems. Sean was inspired to found Texas Medical Management by Dr. Keith Smith's work with Surgery Center of Oklahoma, which is certainly something we're going to talk about on the podcast. Well, Dr. Smith, let's start with you. I mean, you're a true free market champion in healthcare, and I've been following your work for uh, quite a few years now. I, I learned a lot about your surgery center when I read Dr. Marty McCary's book, which is called The Price We Pay. Definitely recommend it for our, all of our listeners out there. And just thinking about the work that you're doing, I wanted to know what inspired you to take that radical step of becoming a free market surgery center with fully transparent procedure pricing, bundling all the fees together up front. What was the motivation there? I think um, in 1997, when we launched, basically walked away from our practices and launched the facility, it was a combination of things. We knew something was terribly wrong. We knew that we were involved in exchanges with patients that were not mutually beneficial. Uh, we knew the hospitals were making a lot of money, maybe more money than ever uh, in the early mid-90s. And our fees from the various people that paid us were dropping like a rock. And so patients were paying more, but the people doing the work were actually making less, and including nursing staff. So that just seemed stupid to us to have a rising administrator class like something out of Terminator but you have the people that are actually doing the work and not being paid what anybody by any stretch of the imagination would call a fair price. Just to give you an example, I was for the last Medicare total knee that I provided an anesthetic for and filed a claim, I was paid $78. That's crazy. I mean, by any stretch of the imagination. So I just stopped filing Medicare claims and treated Medicare patients free. After that, I wouldn't legitimize what was obviously a corrupt and ridiculous system. And the hospitals were making a lot of money. So that's part of it. Part of it was we're doing the same work. We're being paid less and less every day. Uh, this rising Terminator class of administrators is making more and more money all the time. These hospitals were building on and buying physician practices. They were obviously loaded with revenue. Then I think when we realized that we actually were enabling the system by participating in it, we, I believe, accurately acknowledged that we were accomplices. We were accessories to, to financial crimes uh, that were devastating to patients. So that really was kind of what was in our mind. The other thing that's going on and it cannot be neglected is the, the quality of care at the same time that the hospitals were making all this new giant revenue was plummeting. And the hospitals were very careful to ramp up their propaganda machine and make sure everyone thought they were losing money. You know, we're going broke and we're treating all these patients for free in the ERs and we're going bankrupt. And to justify that narrative, one of the things they did was lay off critical nursing staff and the number of patients, the patient to nurse ratio became unacceptable. Surgeons were denied uh, various new technologies that they wanted and needed to perform certain surgeries. So, you know, the, the ability 
in an institution like that at the time to provide the care that you or your family member ought to have was becoming more limited. And so it was time to get out. It was quality reasons. There were philosophical reasons. There were uh, pecuniary reasons because we weren't being paid fairly by any stretch. Yet the patients were being charged a whole lot more. So it it just seemed like an obvious thing to do. We had an opportunity. We were able to pick up a an old burnout, almost destroyed facility, uh, bought it on a hunting trip and wound up taking over the operations for what was a lot of money to Dr. Steve Lantier and me, but he and I bought the whole thing, uh, just the two of us. Um, that's how we got started. Dr. Smith, you have me thinking of Arnold Schwarzenegger now sitting up in a hospital somewhere as a Terminator. I say, I'll be Pretty back. accurate. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sean, I know y'all, your story intertwines with Dr. Smith's. And, and I think it will be really interesting for the listeners to understand how I know originally with Texas Free Market Surgery Center, now Texas Medical Management, followed in the footsteps of OK uh, Surgery Center um, and kind of how that went about and how you guys started your center. Sure, sure. I got into healthcare about 2005. My brother's a craniofacial surgeon, which is one of the longer training paths in medicine. I think he finished his last fellowship when he was 38 years old. And so we came to Austin. We were both did our undergrad here. So it was not a real hard move. It's a great place. And so I got intertwined with a big hospital system here. Unbeknownst to me, my brother had signed an employment agreement with him. And so we were going to do a private practice. Long story short is I ended up a lackey in a big system, which is one of the last things I wanted to do. But I took advantage of it and said, you know what, while I'm on the inside, I'll learn everything I can about where the money flows and where the hospitals make their money, because then that's going to provide me some, as an entrepreneur all my life, opportunities to then do some arbitrage on certain things. And so early on, I realized I learned how important surgery was to the hospital. They would charge, as Dr. Smith just said, they charge absurd amounts of money for procedures that don't have any alignment with or correlation to cost. And so that to me was very interesting. The other thing that was really interesting was when I dove into the numbers, I got to see from an actuarial perspective that 85% of all surgical dollars in the country go to facilities. Now, that also includes implant and that those implant companies are pretty crafty and they're eating, I think, a lot of the hospital systems lunch today and will continue to do so. But what that says is that between surgeon and anesthesia and anything else, pathology, for instance, there's 15% of the dollars. And when you get down to it, just like in any part of healthcare, the doctors are the most important part of the care delivery. So later on, it was no surprise when I left this system in 2014. My brother and I kicked around a bunch of ideas, but really we landed on this idea of if only you could get the cases out of the hospital that ought to be done in a surgery center. And you could the way to do that is to work directly with the surgeon. So that's one. The second part of that was, you know, we also saw in having, I developed surgical groups within this large system, both on the pediatric side and on the adult side. And what I got to see, especially on the pediatric side, we brought in a world-class pediatric neurosurgeon. And the pediatric neurosurgeon that was here in this market, there was only one at the time, had this enormous payer contracts. It was 300% of Medicare. And that's a huge reimbursement. Well, we ended up getting about 175 for this world-class pediatric neurosurgeon. And I asked Blue Cross, United, Cigna, and all those, 
I asked him, I said, well, why can't we get more? I said, our surgeon is demonstrably better than this other surgeon. In fact, this other surgeon, my brother had stopped operating with because of the risk and the deaths associated with procedures. And so they said, well, that person was here first and they were the only one for many, many years and we didn't have to refer out of the market. So what I got to see was really good doctors are not paid anymore than bad doctors. In fact, sometimes it's just the opposite. And so between where all the cost is going in one direction, the other is there's this, things are being done in the hospital that shouldn't be done in the hospital. And then the last part, which is the most important part, which is quality is not rewarded in surgery. Pat and I landed on this idea of like, you know, let's create an alternative surgery model. We, we knew the really good surgeons. My brother does reconstructive microsurgery as well as a part of his craniofacial and plastics practice. And he's an academic guy. So he does a lot of these real big cancer cases where they take out resections and he rebuilds the face and jaw and all this stuff. And it's really beautiful and incredible work, but he gets to do these co-cases with other surgeons. So he had this list of surgeons who were the surgeons that if I called him and said, hey, Pat, I got an ENT problem. Who should I go see? And he'd say, hey, Mikey M's top in the market. I'd go see him for you know, anything you have to do with the throat or sinuses. And then so on and so forth. So foot and ankle, Brandon Smoot and so on. He knew who the good surgeons were because he'd operated with them. So we started there. But what we did was we started having some conversations early in 2015. And then about mid-year, we just picked up the phone and called Keith Smith, Dr. Smith, just said, hey, we're thinking about doing this thing down in Austin. It's pretty darn similar to what you're doing. In fact, we didn't even thought about building a surgery center. Unfortunately, we didn't. But he said, you know, come on up, have a visit. So we loaded up in a Suburban, a bunch of us, and we drove up to Oklahoma City, had a great trip. He was very cordial, told us, you know, I'd love to see this model spread. I'm surprised it hasn't spread more, but I'll do anything I can to help you, which, you know, when you're starting off in a business where, you know, you're looking at a very small sliver of a very large pie in a market, it may sound like it's a good idea, but it's pretty hard to find these people that want to purchase the way we sell outside of the insurance system to have somebody who you can pick up the phone and call and say, okay, so you've done this for a while. I'm thinking about doing this. He's like, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> Back away, Sean. Y'all try another method. And so what inspired us was really my brother and I decided, and I, I, I fundamentally, the only reason I stayed in medicine is if I could be a part of a solution of bringing doctors and patients back together into relationship models that eliminate a lot of the BS, a lot of the friction, a lot of the unnecessary bull that exists today, like the $5,000 out of pockets, like the authorizations and pre-certs and all the different just BS that exists between doctors and patients. If we could eliminate that and let good doctors do what they were trained to do with patients, that right there is a really great start to solving our healthcare problem. Eliminate the executives, the terminators, as Dr. Smith referred to. Just get those folks out. I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen, but that pie chart that Kaiser Health puts out that shows that of the 100% of dollars that are spent on healthcare in this country, 25% go to people who deliver care. It's shocking. So that was our inspiration. And then since then, it's just been 
clawing and scrapping and fighting and trying to stay alive long enough to get to the point where you can actually keep your head above water long enough. And, and we've been very, very blessed. We're in a market that's a tough market. It's not a whole lot of self-funded employers here, a lot of big systems. But uh, I'll tell you, having an organization like the Free Market Medical Association, which uh, Dr. Smith and Jay Kempton started back in the mid-2010s, has been just a life send because it's my one time a year I get together with my, my fellow strange free market folks, and we get to talk about how we're doing things, how we're solving puzzles in our own markets, how we're taking care of people. And then introduce different employers or brokers or TPAs are actually stepping into this space. And it's really helping us to spread this kind of model across the, the country. If you looked at a, at a line, it probably still looks pretty flat. We're not even close to a hockey stick, but you know we're keep going down that path. And as everybody knows, at one point, we're going to get there. We're going to get enough of a groundswell, get enough of a base, enough people that are changing the way they purchase. Because it's fundamentally, that is the most critical part for the survival and thriving of free market providers is changing the way people purchase. I'm not just talking about self-pay because that, that is also a very important part aspect of the business we take care of or the people we take care of, but it's the employers. It's the TPAs, it's the, the smaller health shares, for instance, that are purchasing things very different, not through networks, not through the traditional Buka ASOs and so on. So it's great to be involved. It's been phenomenal getting to meet some of the amazing people we've got to meet. And I'm just every day, get up and thank God I'm doing this. I have to say, I love, you kind of said this earlier, but in a competitive environment, it's somewhat rare that a you know someone would welcome you in and say, yes, please spread this movement. And let's start something. I think that says a lot for you, Dr. Smith, that you welcome them and you, you said, yes, let's do this. I want to help. I want to see this message grow. Almost, yeah, I think that's really valuable. One thing I wanted to follow up really quickly on was, I think I heard you, Sean, say at an event in the past I attended that people fly in, stay at a five-star hotel, take a limousine from the hotel over to your, you know, to have the surgery done and they're still saving money, which I just remember that burned in my brain. I was like, are you kidding? What's the furthest the patients traveled to come for both of you? I'm curious to, to come in and, and receive care at your center. Maybe, maybe Sean, what's the furthest you guys have seen? I think the furthest we've seen is we had a person come in from New Hampshire. We currently have a patient in town from Atlanta some of these are the, the, the odd ones that are kind of confounding and kind of hard for them to get care. Dr. Smith, they take care of a whole lot of people. His website and his presence out there has been so phenomenal that they get a ton of people from all over the country. I hear constantly from people like, oh my God, I didn't know you guys were around. I live <laughs> at the surgery center of Oklahoma. And I'm like, more power to him. That's great. We get some people from far afield. Uh, I think the the story I was telling you about, about the, the limousine and stuff is it's actually a client and it's a client of Keith's as well. And they are a set of maverick beer distributors and they set up an, their own insurance company. By God, they'll take their employees and fly them from all over the country. And they, they do it nice. They fly them, you know, first class, they put them the, with the spouse, they pick them up in a limo, they have a gift basket at the hotel. It's a four or five star hotel. They pay for their food. They give them a per diem. They give them a thousand dollars cash. Plus they cut all their copay, coinsurance, uh, deductible, and they still save money. And that's, 
that says something about how upside down the economics are at the hospitals in our local areas. Oh, absolutely. What about you, Dr. Smith? I've told people this before, but when I launched the website in 2009, the first patients that arrived were Canadians. And all the fans of socialized medicine that think that's a good idea need to come to grips with what the Canadian presence here really means. Uh, those people have coverage. They just don't have access to the care so many of them need. We have a guy coming next week who's torn his cruciate ligament, and he's coming from London. Uh, he was told it would be six months before he could see a doctor, before he could even see an orthopedist. And then, of course, they get in, I love this word, the queue. They get in, <laughs> the line. They get in, I love saying it. I feel like a Brit or a Canadian um, who astonishingly, even after traveling here to receive their care, will defend their system. So they're in the queue. One of my buddies in Canada has told me this joke that no Canadian is truly content unless they're standing in line. <laughs> so this guy's coming from London. We've had patients, many patients come from Africa. Wow. Uh, and from Europe. Uh, we've had folks from Turkey. One of our orthopedists who's retired now fixed a rotator cuff on a, on a patient from, from Turkey. They've come from all over the place. But again, I mean, they see the price. And I think people are smart enough to put two and two together. And they think, well, if they'll actually tell me how much it is, maybe they're honest and they actually know what they're doing. And I think people connect those dots. So yeah, we we see people from all 50 states. I used to say, except why, but we had our first Hawaiian two months ago. Nice. So all 50 states, we have employers, just like at Sean's place, that fly people here, house them here, all expenses paid, and pay the surgery, and just save shocking, shocking amounts. You know, as I think about this uniquely American healthcare system, and I don't even know if you would call it a system because it's so systemically broken and fragmented. I, you know, I think about this quote that George Halverson said once. He was the former CEO of Kaiser Permanente, and he said, we have this expensive plethora of uncoordinated, unlinked, economically segregated, operationally limited microsystems, each performing in ways that often create suboptimal performance. And I think about the inefficiencies of our American healthcare system and how the buyer is irreparably harmed by that. I mean, when we have medical bankruptcy as the number one cause of personal bankruptcy in our country, uh, just medical costs. And I think about this and, you know, Dr. Smith, I wanted to ask you, why do you think the status quo of our system has been allowed to continue for so long? And how can the healthcare system save itself from itself and, and really create a more reimagined, more consumer-friendly, transparent system? Well, I, I think you have to be cautious when anyone associated with Kaiser Permanente is suggesting that we actually need more coordination and planning. It's central planning and coordination uh, that has brought us where we are. And what we're seeing in the United States is truly working as it was designed. So it is a cartel. Uh, there is no mistaking that. And I tell people the only difference between the medical cartel 
in the United States and a Mexican drug cartel is the Mexican drug cartel actually delivers a product that's quality. So you have a situation where it works like a cartel. You have a federal government that is working extremely hard hand in hand with the inside industry players to create a massive consolidation of the industry the minimum loss ratio of the Unaffordable Care Act, you know, the big boys could comply with that. You have this situation where the industry insiders are actually writing the laws under which they are supposed to perform. And of course, they write the little guys right out of the equation. So, you know, now we have four or five insurance companies and oh my gosh, how many were there before the Unaffordable Care Act? And of course, everything got more expensive after that. So there are people that go to Washington, D.C. with their checkbook and they write big fact checks at an auction and all of our liberties are for sale in Washington, D.C. And so these itinerant mountebanks in Washington auction off favors to their crony pals and then you have these hospital systems, insurance companies, big pharma, you know, they pay for these favors. And so you have this industry consolidation and prices go wild and quality goes in the toilet. And that's not what happens in a free market. In a free market, prices trend lower and quality soars, just like in LASIK and plastic surgery. Those are unaffected for the most part by any kind of federal intervention. And if you want to know a price, you can call and get it. So I would argue this system is working exactly as it was intended to work, and it's a disaster, but it's no failure of the free market. It's an absence of the free market. If you will take away the massive regulatory hurdles that have been put in place to keep entrance into the marketplace at bay, if you will take that stuff away, then you would begin to see I think the market work a little bit better. What I think is interesting right now is that in spite of all of the headwinds, the buyers in the marketplace, particularly the self-funded proxy buyers, they are putting their foot down and they are demanding in spite of all of the Kool-Aid that's been force fed to them like the victim of a full gras, they are demanding transparent pricing. They're demanding that these traditional price gougers pivot and to offer to do business in a different way. The largest hospital system in Oklahoma now has prices online. And they've done that in response to what we've done. Now, there are a lot of asterisks that list, you know, they take you to links that tell you what is not covered. If you want to have some fun, do an internet search, UCLA cash pricing. And on your on your second computer screen, if you have one, pull up my website and you'll see that they copied my website word for word. They covered the, they copied my avatar. My web designers wanted me to sue them. And I said, no way, this will be too much fun to constantly make fun of them for doing this. Because UCLA didn't do this because there's some price transparent free marketeers. They did this because people were flying here from Los Angeles. So this system is working exactly like it's supposed to. The federal government needs to be thumped harder than anyone. 
You have all these brokers and consultants that are feeding everybody Kool-Aid because they're being paid by the big carriers. And all of these industry cronies need need a good thumping. But we have to remember Uncle Sam is driving the getaway car. All of these favors are, are impossible without the D.C. regulatory machine auctioning off everything we hold near and dear. I couldn't agree more. And I think about these these old incumbent legacy players in our system, they're not going to be the ones driving this change. It has to come from new entrants and disruptors and innovators like you that are willing to go in and almost start a pricing war and and really create the level of transparency to move the market. Sean, I I know you learned a lot from Dr. Smith, and that inspired you to go ahead and, and start your business. And I wanted to see if if maybe you had any advice that you could provide some other groups in terms of uh, thinking about uh, creating similar models based on price transparency. Yeah, so we get approached on a pretty regular basis by people that own facilities or partners or mostly surgeons, though. Every once in a while, we get an anesthesiologist and they just, at one point, somebody gave them a red pill and they're like super excited. And I, I teach them everything I know, everything I was taught, and I tell them, It's not easy. Don't give up your day job. If you're a surgery center and you're living off of managed care contracts, you can't just cut that off immediately. But moving in the direction, start posting your prices. You know, give your prices to individuals in the market looking for a surgery. Uh, Work with your surgeons, work with your anesthesiologists, Uh, make it easier for people to purchase from you, either on a cash basis or then start talking to employers. And people will, uh, you know, after a couple of meetings, they'll be like, well, Sean, you know, it's kind of weird you're helping us. You know, we're in San Antonio, we're in Corpus, we're in Waco, and it's kind of weird. Why are you doing this? I said, well, first of all, I think ultimately healthcare is going to be local. I mean, I think the, the day in the not too distant future when most of Dr. Smith's patients come from an area around Oklahoma City would be his end goal. We all would like to be able to draw from our communities because there's plenty of people in our communities to support what we're doing. They just don't purchase through means that can get to us at the moment. So I will tell these people, look, what I would like to do is I would like to have more provider points, transparency, transparent provider points, whether it's direct primary care subscription models, whether it's imaging or labs or whatever else in healthcare or surgery. And I'll help people. And the reason is because getting more and more providers involved in the marketplace, that energy, that passion of those people out there is going to get more touch points to employers, to TPAs, to different groups. And the more providers, more supply we have, the more we're going to start to draw in the demand. If it's just me here in Austin and Dr. Smith in Oklahoma City and then a few other points around the U.S., We can go on the nightly news every darn night and it's just going to like make a blip. But when it starts happening in Topeka and it starts happening in Shreveport and it starts happening in Albuquerque and Olympia, little places around the country, little places, cities around the country, that's when you're going to start to see these things change. Local employers, like Dr. Smith just mentioned, the self-funded employer health plan has a fiduciary responsibility to purchase from people like us. Now, most of them are trapped in this model where they can't. Big Blue or whomever tells them, no, you can't buy through that, they're not in network, or we can't process their claims or whatever, lie. 
what we do is we help these employers get to models like with the Kempton Group. Uh, it's a TPA that uh, is very active in the free market space. They're based in Oklahoma City. Boone Chapman's uh, a TPA here in Austin, Texas. Uh, the different health shares that are out there, they're also facilitating purchasing and demand into the free market surgical space. And so by building more supply, we're going to get more demand. It's not a build it and they will come. It's actually taking existing supply that may be in a surgery center that is at uh, lower than X percentage of capacity. And they say, we'd love to get, you know, 10, 20 cases a week more. Our surgeons would love to get those cases. And this is a way for us to kickstart that and say, look, well, you know, bundle your prices, put them on your website. What do you got to lose? I think back when Dr. Smith started, there was actually a lot to lose. Uh, and he suffered through a lot of that. You know, the big insurance companies and hospitals and government and everybody else came knocking on his door. And it wasn't to say hi and wish him well. It was to try to trip him up and push his face into the mud. But nowadays, I think they're going to have to be a little more subtle than that. Now, I agree with what Dr. Smith said wholeheartedly about this industry. I mean, if it wasn't too long ago that we all heard, just go ahead and pass the bill and then we'll read it, right? Famous last words, ACA. That was Nancy Pelosi. Thank you. The whole thing was written by industry insiders. I was up in D.C. in November of 2019 for the second part of the transparency uh, executive orders that President Trump signed. And Cynthia Fisher of Patient Rights Advocate, if you don't know her, get to know her. She's phenomenal. And she is putting her money where her mouth is. When we were up there, uh, she said, Sean, working through the tra traditional means of lobbying to get this free market, transparent provider effort through to the Congress will not work. She said, every single House committee, subcommittee, Senate committee, Senate subcommittee has at least five lobbyists just from the pharmacy industry, each one. So you can only imagine that's pharmacy. That's just, that's just retail pharmacy. Now talk about manufacturers, talk about PBMs. We haven't even gotten to the rest of healthcare. So multiply that and you can see why Washington is not the solution. And this is going to be disrupted without the government's help. And it's gonna to have to be rational people like a self-funded employer local here in, in Georgetown said, got a bill for $65,000 for uh, an emergency room visit for their grandson, okay? Said, I'm not gonna take this anymore. Said, I wanna look at all of our claims for the last two years. Couldn't get the information from a year ago, got a little bit of information and said, you know what? This is a cartel, this is, this is wrong. And then broke apart his plan. And now all of his employees have access to direct primary care. They have access to free market surgeries. They send people to Oklahoma. They send people to us. And all because this guy woke up and realized when you say race to value, that's what value is. Value is quality over unit cost. And that's what we produce. When you can see our prices on our website, I can't wait to go look at this UCLA website, Keith. That's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> that is absolutely, I mean, 
you should be very proud. <laughs> look at it. Look at it right now. It's just it's a cracker. Well, it's it's like your Blue Cross letter. You're you know you got yeah, a couple of absolutely. <laughs> Getting canceled. So I think fighting this through Washington's a losing battle. I think even fighting it through the the incumbents. I think Rick Scott said it. This is when he was still governor of Florida, but right after he'd served for what a decade as, as CEO of HCA, he said, "If you think hospitals are going to solve this problem, you got another thing coming. You're asking them to cut their revenues by about seventy percent." Yeah, I mean that's. I think you hit so many things you said. I wanted to just you know jump in and say amen, but I I think. The biggest takeaway for me was there's so much money involved that you know there's so many entrenched interests pushing against change that it, it, it's not going to come from the top, like you said. You know, and I think Eric, one of your guests, made a, a comment in the past that, that was a, a quote, which essentially said, you know, it's really hard to get someone to understand something when their paycheck depends on them not understanding it. And it's a quote I've used many times because it's uh, it's, it's it's such a good one. A question I think I have is. We we talked we've talked a little bit about price transparency, the new rules that have come out and are now in effect. You know that's something at Point Health that we really care about. I know you talked, Sean, about the supply side. We want to help with the demand side. We want to send more patients to the kinds of facilities. We want to help facilitate that through healthcare navigation and things of that nature. However, Dr. Smith, I listened to the Forbes podcast, Steve Forbes podcast you were on, and on there you said you don't think the new CMS price transparency rules are are going to actually work or 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 make a difference. So I wanted to dig into that a little bit and have you shed some light on your line of thinking there and perhaps what you think could be done with that for it to make a difference. Yeah, and I it's more complicated than they won't work. Mostly they won't work, but it already has worked in a way and that it's changed the narrative. And I think I made that point when Steve Forbes and I were talking, whenever the government mandates something that doesn't happen in a vacuum, those mandates, uh, however well-intentioned, uh, there's a reaction to them uh, by the most unscrupulous individuals on the planet. And those are the people who are elected representatives in Washington, D.C. So they have, they have two different reactions. One is how do I sell exemptions to this mandate? How do I basically sell indulgences? So we have this law now, and I get to charge people a toll to get around it. I would argue that's already taken place. The penalties were not that severe for noncompliance, and the big boys are just paying the fine. They're not about to post their prices. They're just going to pay the fine. There may be some smaller institutions out there that struggle with the fine. That's fine with the big boys. Let's just keep, you know, mashing their face in the mud as Tom's, as Sean said, and then, you know, maybe we can go buy them out and consolidate even more. So I would argue uh, selling indulgences is already happening. The other thing that Cynthia Fisher, who Sean also mentioned, has told me is absolutely true the other thing has happened too, and I predicted all of this years ago that, you know, when the government says we're coming to help you, you better run. I mean, that is really a bad, that's a bad thing. The other thing that's happened is there has been a, an incredible attempt to redefine price transparency, and it's been very successful. So now the definition of price transparency apparently is what is the patient's out of pocket? Not how much is it? 
what is the patient's out of pocket? And the insurance companies, of course, and their hospital pals, you know, work very hard together to make sure that the language is actually corrupted and that price transparency has been redefined. And I would argue that's already happened too. So to that extent, yes, this mandate is not gonna work. On the bright side, it's changed the narrative. So I don't have the tinfoil hat on my head that I used to have when in 2009 we launched our website. Uh, now, if you don't know the answer to how much is it, you're the outlier. You're the one that is receiving the scrutiny you deserve. You're the one that has some explaining to do. So I would argue the scales are tipping so that to the larger public, it's seeming more and more normal every day to ask the question, how much is it and get an answer? It seems more and more diabolical to ask the question and not receive an answer. So I think the executive order overall if it does anything positive, and I think it has, I think it's changed the narrative, but I think it won't do anything beyond that. Yeah, I think it's an um, education campaign in a way to make sure that that language doesn't get completely co-opted because you're right, it's not just what's, out of, what's the out-of-pocket, it's what's the actual cost, what, what is the price? And it's almost always an exorbitant amount. You know, there, there have also been examples, I'm sure you've seen this, of hospitals hiding their price information and blocking search engines like Google from indexing that. Inf so they publish it. You know, it's, it's out there, but, but you can't find it. And I even saw another, another article where it, it took 25 clicks in order to, to get to the page where that was. And it's just, you know, they're, they're obf obfusc obfuscating the information so that it's hard to find. Something that, that I'm passionate about and that we're really are trying to, to, to help with is helping patients find this information in, in a more easily understandable format. I'm curious, I want to get both of your thoughts on this. You know, if patients had access to whether that's an app or an application or a service or something that would make it simpler, not easy, because it's always going to be difficult, but to compare these things and what is, what is an all-inclusive price? What is, you know, just the price without the anesthesiology and the hospital fee? Do you think that having some kind of service or, or solution like that to allow them to compare, you know, more apples to apples would make a difference and would drive more patients to the kind of centers that you're, you're referencing? Yeah, it's out there right now. Sean runs one. I run one. You look at atlasbillingcompany.com. Uh, the Free Market Medical Association runs one. It's called Shop Health, where there are bundled fees. I have to point out that, you know, patients need a guide through this serpentine morass. And the best guide they can have is a primary care doctor who works for them, who's not a hospital employee. Because the hospital-employed primary care docs work for the hospital. They don't work for the patients. So a good primary care doc knows that, okay, this patient's going to have this orthopedic surgery, but, oh, my gosh, are, is the physical therapy, is the durable medical equipment included? What is the anesthesiologist in this? And you have, you have an advocate like that who's actually working for you. I can't stress that enough, that the, the guide – that needs to lead patients over the bridge under which all of the trolls live, that's really the primary care doc who's independent, who's working for the patient. But there are some resources out there. David Goldhill's Sesame Health is out there. There's a lot of stuff that's popping up because of market demand. And when these self-funded buyers wake up, and send that signal into the marketplace, the entrepreneurs will respond. And some of it will mean new bricks and mortar 
Uh, like Sean said, some of it will be existing facilities who just change their ways. I'm here to tell you there are hospitals that know uh, that this is inevitable. The writing's on the wall and they're working hard to change their ways. And I'm actually helping some of them. Mm -hmm. They're big box hospitals whose prices are listed on atlasbuildingcompany.com. These are hospitals that tried to put me out of business for years. Just wrap your mind around that. They know this is coming. They know it's inevitable. The buyers are going to demand it. They're going to send that signal into the marketplace, overwhelm the existing demand of fair dealers, and then see more fair dealers because if they're revenue focused, they're going to lose revenue if they don't follow this more honest path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sean, anything else you'd add? Yeah, I'll tell you, I think that at the end of the day, there's a lot of ways to find out. There's the websites, of course, but as Dr. Smith said, a primary care doctor is usually, and especially one that works for you. So I'm, what I'm referring here is the direct primary care doctor. That's a subscription model that they limit their practice to usually less than 700 to 900 patients. So they actually know all their patients by name and they know their conditions when they meet them. They don't have to go like pull up notes from 15 years ago to see who they are. And so this primary care doctor is literally a couple phone calls away from finding out quality of finding out whether or not anesthesia is involved or not. And these direct primary care doctors tend to serve a market of people who are rebelling against the insurance system, the copay you know, paper cut to death model that we have inside the insurance plans. So they're very proud of that. So wherever we go, we have operations in Austin and Houston now. And the very first people we talk to are the direct primary care doctors. We manage the Austin chapter for the Free Market Medical Association here in Austin. And 60% of the people that show up every month are direct primary care doctors. And they're trading information between each other and then talking about, hey, I sent a patient to Sean for an ENT procedure. It was fantastic. Hey, I sent somebody to Oklahoma City for this condition, had a great experience. And so they're really strong advocates, but I think, I think it goes beyond advocacy. It goes to a fiduciary position. So they're taking on this healthcare fiduciary, which is what I think a lot of us incorrectly or innocently, stupidly thought Blue Cross was doing for us, but, or our local, you know, hospital with a big cross on the sign. You know, we thought people were actually advocating and, and looking out for our interest. And uh, that's not the case today. But as Dr. Smith said earlier, there should be a very strong signal to direct primary care and primary care doctors and individuals and employers that if you're willing to put your price, your all-inclusive price on your website and stand behind it, you know, you're going to cover problems that come up during a certain number of days after this procedure. That's something you don't buy through Blue Cross. Blue Cross doesn't insist on that. They don't want that. If there's complication, they want the more spending. Because remember, they get 15% of every dollar. So more spending means more money to them. They're not in this game of like controlling costs, improving quality. So if somebody's posting their price, that's a strong signal that they're willing to stand behind their quality, stand behind their service, and stand behind their price. So that right there, if you can find those people, and there's, there's lots of these. There's Clear Choice Health, there's Healthcare Blue Book, there's 
uh, Sesame Health, David Goldhill's company. There's quite a few out there. I think if you Google a little bit, you'll see. The other thing you can do is if uh, people are listening to this, they can, they can look up Surgery Center of Oklahoma or Texas Medical Management, our website. They can call us. And if they're living in Topeka, I'll guarantee you, Dr. Smith, or I know somebody there or we're a phone call or two away from helping them find somebody. The other thing to keep in mind is I create probably six new bundled episodes of care a week. Mm-hmm. Wow. So if someone needs something and it is not on any list that they can find, I would encourage them to do exactly what Sean just said and reach out because that's how our list grows. Our so- list grows when someone requests something that's not on the list and then I go to work. And I have a little worksheet that has all the blanks. I'll show you a copy one if you want to see it. It's really simple. And you just fill them all in and think, okay, well, I, you know, I know they're going to need this if they need this procedure. And so let me show you one. They're kind of fun. Yeah, we, we do the same thing. We have a, a, a surgical nurse, Javier, who does this. Right here. This is what I fill out. This is how I create bundles. I have Kylie Mays, who works for me, got these post-it notes, basically, that are big. And they've got all these things I fill in and create new bundles and we just do them all the time. So, you know, somebody's got a, somebody's got a brain tumor, somebody's got a cerebral aneurysm, uh, they've got, you know, need some special kind of procedure. You just create new bundles. So reach out. If anybody's hearing this, we shouldn't, shouldn't be afraid to reach out if something's not on some list. We are very willing to talk to people and open And like Dr. Smith said, if we have the specialty, that means we've hand-selected or personally interviewed and selected the surgeon in that specialty or surgeons. And it's just a matter like Dr. Smith can pick up the phone just like I can get Javier, pick up the phone, call an orthopedist, say, hey, we don't have this bundle. What's it going to entail? And within a very short period of time, we can have a price. Well, we have those listeners out there that are definitely interested, and I'm sure you'll get a couple of emails, and it take, it's a grassroots movement to make this happen, but I'd love to hear from you both. What would you tell those that are in denial? You know, I, I, I personally am convinced of the invisible hand and how that can drive markets and create higher quality, lower costs, but there's obviously a segment of the incumbent industry that's motivated by fee-for-service incentives, but then they'll try to make those rational arguments that having full transparency and healthcare, it's actually going to lead to higher prices and less competition and in more consolidation in certain markets. What would you say to them in terms of dispelling some of the myths in a, in a free market healthcare economy? Yeah. The, the very first thing is that whole idea of transparency causing increases in prices. So that's one study out of Belgium about concrete manufacturers, one, and the hundreds of thousands of others that exist telling you the other side of the story. So my paycheck depends on this thing staying this way. So I'm going to tell you what I think you need to hear. I also get this, Eric and Steve, providers will say, hey, well, you know, this is going to be a race to the bottom. I'm like, well, why do you think that? No, oh, you know, everybody's going to cut their prices. I say, well, no, people can't cut their prices below cost and stay alive for very long. One, two, that hasn't happened in other areas in healthcare. And they're like, what do you mean? I was like, Lasix. Lasix has a very well profitable business model. We have a LASIK provider here in town that charges a premium price, but has a premium name, Dell, and he gets a premium price. And then there's others that charge a much lower price and are also very high quality. 
And so just like in any other industry, they've stratified price based on reputation, quality, et cetera. One's going after volume. They've got probably a lower cost model. And the other has more of a swanky offices and has higher cost. The other thing is in plastic surgery, where it's all cash. We haven't seen a race to the bottom. You haven't seen doctors like starving on street corners, begging for money because, you know, breast procedures now are paying me nothing. I'm paying people to do them. No, it's just the opposite. What it's driven is innovations in technology, innovations in procedures, innovation in sites of service. Doctors, uh, surgeons like plastic surgeons with the training they have working with anesthesiologists with great training can do a lot of these procedures in office settings very safely. So that's where the innovative part of the market's going to kick in. It's not all about driving down, quote unquote, price to unprofitable levels. No, it's about innovating on your cost structures, technologies, new and interesting or innovative ways of doing things, cutting out the unnecessary costs. I don't know if you guys knew this, but according to the MGMA, in surgical practices, 30% of their revenues are spent on billing and collections and bad debt. That's horrible. So that's a tax that we all pay if you participate in the, in the insurance system. I think that there is no such thing as a race to the bottom. That's a fun little phrase, but it's used by people who believe in a static analysis and it's flawed economic thinking. What you have, if prices are falling in a competitive market economy, is a race to a market clearing price. So if prices are too high, then you have a surplus of things to sell. If prices are too low, you have a shortage of things to sell. There is a place, and it's called the market clearing price, where shortages and surpluses are minimized. In other words, the market is cleared of the product or service. It's gone because it's that place where the buyer and the seller meet, where both of their needs are most advantageous. So there is no such thing as a race to the bottom, because if the price dips below that, which I can provide a service for here and be profitable, I stop providing that service. That's why we don't do colonoscopies or EGDs at our facility, because there are two places in town who are cheaper than I could possibly ever be. And there's just, it's silly for me to even try to compete with them. Is that a race to the bottom? No. I mean, a race to the bottom also is through the lens of the seller. And I'm sorry, seller doesn't matter. This consumer is sovereign. All of these issues must be looked through the lens of the buyer, the patient, the proxy buyer, uh, the self-funded employer. So all of this concern about the industry players, that is a sick twist. And the only, the only concern should be for the buyer. And the needs of the buyer are sovereign. And the customer should be sovereign. And it's the job of the sellers to accommodate the needs and preferences of the buyer. So this whole race to the bottom thing, that is a flawed economic thinking to think that that even exists. But there's a lot of flawed economic thinking out there. There's plenty of it. If I could just add, I, I went to a meeting this week for a new client of ours. Uh, it's working with Kempton Group. And it's just south of Austin. 
and the CEO, as it were, of the organization. One of the very last things we talked about in the meeting was he got really concerned about the blowback from the local hospitals. So it was a Baylor Scott and White and an Ascension facility. He said, you know, I sit on the community development board with the Ascension CEO. And so I'm pretty sure he's going to like get up in my groceries about me sending cases to you. So what do I say? I said, the easiest thing you can tell them is this, match their price and you get the business. And I learned that from Dr. Smith. <laughs> he just said, just tell them, match the price. And you know what? A hospital CEO is not going to do that. But a surgery center maybe down in this area who gets upset might do that, might actually say, well, yeah, okay. Instead of getting upset about it, I'm just going to compete, which is great. That's fantastic. That creates more and more providers that are actually providing value to the purchaser. And that's the key. Right now, we're in a situation where people can't get healthcare not because it's just too expensive, but because their portion of it's too expensive. I mean, this employer has 2,200 employees and they had 400 employees that qualified for zero premium coverage for the employee. Only the employees told them that they've never used the insurance because the out-of-pocket cost was $8,000 per year. So they said, it's really nice. We really appreciate it. And, you know, if we get in a bad accident, I'm pretty sure we'll use it or have a heart attack. But, you know, otherwise, we never touch it. It's too complicated. It's cost too much. So we're at that point where somebody has free insurance from their employer. And the employer is paying $15,000 a year for this coverage. So it's wasted money. Where's it going? It's going to line the pockets of the incumbents. And like I said earlier, that pie chart. Only 25% is going for healthcare. The rest, where's it going? And that's really what we're cutting out. Both Dr. Smith and I have direct contracts with employers. The employer signs a contract with us, says, can I send people to you? Yes. Can you send me a fee schedule? I said, it's on my website. Oh, okay. So it's just there, it's static. I said, well, you know, if it changes, it changes. If I add stuff, add stuff. My prices go up, they go down. I, I do that, but that's my price. I'm not sending you a list. They say, fantastic, great. Okay, then we'll send people to you. And that's when they start to get the feedback because they save so much that they offer it to their employees for free. So now you have, on the one hand, I've got this $8,000 out-of-pocket procedure, and now I've got this free one. It doesn't take too many people making smart decisions to realize that let's go with the free. And then what happens, Dr. Schmidt? They come back to their employer and the water cooler talk starts. And then it's like, God, this is kind of a little concerned about going to this place. It's not a big hospital, whatever. But then once they come back, it's like, my God, this phenomenal doctors had great offices. These are some of the top practitioners in our respective markets are partnering with us. It's great facilities, great service, solid price, no surprise bill guarantee. And then it starts to take off. And so that's how this is going to spread inside employers. And I really believe that, as we were talking about just recently, I don't believe in a race to the bottom. I do believe that, like Dr. Smith mentioned, endoscopy centers, whether they're GI or there's an ENT center in Atlanta that just, I see their prices. And I'm like, I could never compete with them. If they came to us and I just like, I'm out, <laughs> there'd be no way. Because 
they're so good and they're so focused and they know their costs so well, they're able to produce a product that's hard to compete against. Only another ENT group that owns its facility would be able to do that. So gentlemen, I think we've effectively dispelled that myth of the race to the bottom, but clearly we have a race to value. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about the value movement. And I know the value-based care, conventionally it's thought of as these ACOs and you know other risk-bearing entities that are you know working a lot of these different government plans and CMMI models. But I like to think of it more holistically, you know, think about that value equation. And Sean, you mentioned this earlier. We have an economic and a moral imperative to really think about improved patient outcomes, a better experience, lower costs. I mean, those levers of the value equation, they're immutable aims, and we have to think about that. And so I, I thought a good way to, you know, as we're approaching the end of our interview today is really think about, and I would love to get your your take on this, you know, just thinking about this medical industrial complex, you know, Dr. Marty McCary talked about how 48% of spending, you know, goes to healthcare and just alarming research out there. We see the percent of GDP, but just thinking about the imperative that we have as a country to really find free market solutions. How does this concept of value-based care come into play in a free market surgery center that's really built on price transparency? Can you speak a little bit about your thoughts on the government's role and value and then what ultimately is going to move the needle? Is it going to be government? Is it going to be employers? I would love to get some commentary on on just this this movement to value-based care. So Medicare pays 2x for the same physician service provided by a hospital-employed doctor as they do the same service by a non-hospital-employed doctor. So, I mean, keep going. Medicare pays the so-called not-for-profit hospital across town from me twice what I have listed on my website. And that's just for the facility. Medicaid pays the hospitals more than I have listed on my website. So I would argue government should recuse itself from any conversation about value. They have no place in the conversation whatsoever. Whenever somebody wastes money and throws money around like that, and then they wanna talk about value I'm afraid we all need to acknowledge how comical that is. I want to stress, too, that nobody even knew really what value was until the mid-1800s. And the Austrian economists have to get credit for this. Up until then, what Karl Marx thought was true about value is what everyone embraced, that it had, it was the labor theory of value, that something is worth, its value is determined by what effort was put into making it. Again, that looks through the lens from the producer's side. Value must always be considered through the lens of the consumer. And consumers are all individuals, and they all have different preferences. So to one individual, value might mean, I get it now. They might value now more than they value next week. Many people do. 
Some people may say, I'm, you know, for me, value is a doctor who will listen to me as long as I'll talk to them. Some people say, I don't care about any of that. I just want the guy, he can be a jerk if he's a surgeon. I just want him to know what he's doing. There are all different kinds of ways to measure value, but they have to be considered through the lens of the buyer. The whole idea that you can place data and analytics over aggregate populations and tease value out of that, I think is a mistake. And I think, frankly, it's dangerous. And even Marty McCary in his first big blockbuster, Unaccountable, you know, Marty's a scientist. He's his friend. He's a really smart guy. And at the end of that book, he threw up his hands. He was trying to objectively quantify quality. He couldn't do it. And at the end, he said, do a survey, do a survey of the staff who work at Cleveland Clinic and see how many of them would have their heart operated on there. You know, they're a five-star outfit. And of course, the vast majority of the employees there would have their heart operated on in that facility. How many would have their hip replaced at Cleveland Clinic? None. But you got this five-star place. Well, I would go even further. There are surgeons that are really good, and there are some surgeons who may not be quite as good in a facility that has five stars. So what are you going to put your five-star label on? Are you going to put it on the facility? Are you going to put it on the individual surgeon? Are you going to put it on the surgeon who has his favorite team with him that day or his B team with him that day? The whole idea of quality, which is part of the value consideration, I think has to be looked at differently. And I think it's a mistake the way it's being approached right now. I'm making a series of videos with my big Bernese Mountain Dog to educate people about value. Jerry, my Bernese Mountain Dog is the best dog in the world ever, in the history of dogs, in the history of the world. And anybody who has a dog might take an issue with me for me saying that. They may think they have the best dog. And you know what they do? We're both right because subjective value is the only way to look at value. And, you know, the Austrian economists get credit for this and they figured this out in the mid 1800s. And the idea that a government that flushes money down the Medicare commode as fast as they can has anything to say anything at all to contribute about value, I think we all just need to have a good glass of scotch and laugh about that one. I love that. So the, <laughs> the, 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 I love you, Keith. <laughs> no, it's true. <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. My dog, and I was taking issue with the dog because I just hugged my dog before I came in this morning. <laughs> but I think, okay, so this is just a little anecdotal story. So hang with me. I was at Ascension, this is uh, 2011, 12, value comes in. Oh, it's the big new buzzword. Everybody's, oh, we got to align with value. We got to align with value. So there's all the executive meetings. And we hired this former Aetna executive to come in and start an insurance product and go direct contract and all this kind of stuff. So first thing we did was create an ACO out of the gate. He puts it together. I'm one of the clinical people from the physician side, surgeon side. And so I'm one of a team of about six people. We put the whole presentation together. We go give it to the CEOs of all the hospitals. Okay. These are the princes of the system. And they were up in arms. They were beside themselves. They were just 
livid. What do you mean you're going to reduce my revenue? What do you mean you're going to like take away what I can earn on the market from my own contract negotiations or so on? And we said, whoa, whoa. the insurance executive said, oh, I think you guys are mistaken. We're taking a population. I think the initial population was 50,000 people. And we're going to get those from X insurance company. Okay, great. And so we're going to manage the care better. They're like, yeah, but it's going to end up reduce surgeries, reduce incidents of ER visits. He said, no, 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 no. That's not it. An ACO is a funnel. That's why we bought all these physician practices. That's why we started up these ERs. That's why we set up affiliation with urgent cares. It's a funnel. An ACO is an organization through which we funnel everything into our organization. We get to decide whether it's done in a hospital or an ASC or an office. We get to decide whether it goes to the really expensive heart center down the road or it comes to higher quality, lower cost one up north. And said, no, we control that. So all the CEOs just got real calm. They're like, okay, I get it now. This is going to work great. So an ACO was another name for creating a hospital model to drive hospital profits. So where I'm going with this is if we rely on government or big incumbent organizations to come up with the solutions, they're always going to twist the model to favor them. The results will be the same, if not worse, because at least today we kind of know how to game the system and optimize to the best performance we can. If they reshuffle the deck chairs, now all of a sudden everything's free for prices increasing, uh, sites of service changing. It gives way too much power to people. And here, I'll leave you with this. If ACOs were really performing the kind of service that they purport to perform, why do they not send patients to free market surgical centers? Dr. Smith, do you get any ACO patients? Yeah, it's actually where you are so kind. And that's one reason I like you, Sean, is that you're so magnanimous, but you're way too kind talking about ACOs. Keep in mind, the doctors that are part of ACOs make more money to the extent that the ACO does not spend money on patient care. So think about that. I mean, the incentives are completely maligned. <laughs> I mean, how would you like to go to the doctor, if they actually honestly revealed to you that to the extent that I can limit what is spent on your care, I actually make more money. I can buy a bigger boat. So ACOs are designed to deny care and it's human nature. The people that are involved in ACOs, HMOs, I mean, all these three letter organizations, they make more money to the extent that money is not spent. That doesn't mean that value is increased because less money is spent. It may mean that people are just being denied care or put in lines. You know, here we are at the end of December and our numbers are looking pretty bad. I really can't get you in to see anybody for that until January or February. I and mean, that happens all the time. So yeah, I would very much frown on those types of organizations. And Sean's right. They do not refer outside of the mothership because that would put their job in peril. Because the true purpose of the ACO is to be a funnel. Just as hospital administrators have told Jay Kempton, the true purpose of a PPO, it's a, basically an ATM machine for their hospital. The time to take the gloves off and call these things what they are is long overdue. And Sean is exactly right about the ACOs. 
Well, guys, we are nearing the end of our conversation here. It has been a wonderful conversation. I feel like we've hit on so many topics that are incredibly important in this healthcare system, if we want to call it that, as you know, Eric earlier said. I think the last thing I, I maybe I'd want to close on as we wrap is just I'd love to maybe have you reflect for a moment on the work you've done. Do you really feel that the work you've been able to, to put into this has made a difference in shedding light on the collusion and corruption you referred to? Are you proud of that? And, and maybe what's what's next in terms of this movement that, that we think we've all been discussing? I see it on the faces of the patients that we see here. It's not possible really in words to describe how gratifying it is to having taken control of an institution and wielding, to the extent that we have control, wielding our abilities in a way that allows people who didn't think they could afford care to obtain care. We have patients that are part of self-funded organizations uh, who no one on this Zoom call would characterize as highly compensated. They show up with their children and they have their tonsils out or the hearing impaired child receives a cochlear implant. And many times this happens in December. And these patients will just tell us, you know, we were either going to have Christmas or our child was going to have this surgery. And thanks to you, we didn't have to choose. We see that stuff every day. It's just wonderful to get up and come to work. It's just a wonderful environment and you see it on the faces of the patients, it's incredibly gratifying. And every day, I feel like the entire team here is vindicated for our decision. We can almost measure the extent to which we are doing the correct and right thing by the wailing of the bad guys, of those who wish us failure. Uh, it's, it's almost a badge of honor for certain players in the industry to say horrible things about us. That energizes us, if anything. So yes, it's wonderful to come to work. And everybody here, my staff included, they have smiles on their face and they realize, everybody who works here, all 115 surgeons, all of my staff realize this is a missional thing. Yes, we've been successful, but there's a missional part of this that just goes deep and just spiritually really affects people. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. And it has been from the very beginning. I, I completely agree. It's the patient stories that's more than anything. A patient coming in from Atlanta, her mother had a total joint failed procedure done in Africa, where she's from. And her daughter is a, a nurse at Emory. In Atlanta, they tried to get her there to get it fixed, couldn't get it fixed, needed an amputation. It was going to cost $50,000. We brought them here. We're even having it done at a big system hospital, and we got the price down to $16,000. And one of the top trauma surgeons, orthopedist in the state. And so it's those kinds where they come here and they're crying because it was, we don't know what we're going to do. We don't know how this is going to turn out. My mom's got an infection in her leg and we can't get rid of it. And everybody's saying we got to do something, but we don't have the money. It's those stories really, they energize not just me. I mean, they energize everybody, but we have a weekly ops call. And that's when the, our concierge team gets to share these stories. And then our patient outcomes team 
who does all the surveys and collects patient outcomes on the end gets to tell these stories to the rest of us who are working in the middle. And it's like, it's just inspiring. It, it makes you feel wonderful that you're helping people out. But that's not the only part. I get the phone calls from the surgeons and they're like, ah, I just want to tell you how much we really, really, really enjoy working for you. I'm working through a rejection report or a denial report. I'm just looking at all the bad debt that I have from all these of our patients and we're having to chase people down and send them to collections. It's just, it's not why I got in medicine, but you know what? Your accounts receivable with this is zero. You pay us in five or seven days. We don't even send you a bill anymore. My office says, and I'm like, no, if the check's wrong, you just tell me and we'll give you another one. It's those kinds of stories too. We're, we're giving the surgeons like a breath of fresh air. They're like, I have some hope that this is going to be all right. And we're going to be able to deliver care and, and practice our art and take care of people and not have to every day work through the slog of dealing with these insurance companies and incumbents and, and the fear of, do I become a hospital employee or do I... One day I was in New Mexico, not too recent, not too long ago. There was an Optum surgery center and an Optum specialty care center, an Optum urgency care center and an Optum professional building. Okay. Where's this going? Optum's owned by United Healthcare. They're going to try to own everything. So I think the joy is on both the patient and the doctor side. And then that we're able to make a difference in our community is palpable when you, you just run into people and, and people run into the grocery store and tell you, thank you for doing what you're doing. And I'm super excited about the future where I think this is going is I think what Dr. Smith started and we're moving along here in Texas. Uh, there are others around the country that are not on this call that are, are, are equally out there pushing the limits and fighting the good fight little by little. I know Dr. Smith sees this. We're seeing more and more TPAs start to move in this direction, more and more brokers who are starting to talk and pull their clients in this direction, more and more self-funded employers are waking up. And so I have a lot of hope. I don't know when it's going to be 1% of the healthcare dollars, or it's going to be 10% or 50%. I can't predict that kind of stuff. I just know that we're keeping our head down, delivering quality care, great service at a really affordable price and knowable price. As long as we can do that, we seem to be doing all right. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap it up with the hope and the and the patient stories and the surgeon stories and and you know the difference that um, is being made. So with that, I just want to say thank you both for joining us. Really enjoyed the conversation, and we look forward to the next one. Thanks, gentlemen. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Thank y'all.